context is hugely important for anything. Whenever you're trying to understand anything at all, context really is absolutely key. What I didn't say the other day when I was going on about this was um, from uh, the new Break the Trauma Bond course. Now, if you did the Breaking the Trauma Bond course earlier in the year, it was a good course. It was a nice little course, about an hour long and about four exercises in it. At the moment, um, it's now developed into uh, four chapters with a bunch of other exercises that go outside of it because I want it to kind of function as my final word on, on narcissism, narcissistic abuse and narcissistic relationships and how to overcome them. The course will also be a pretty good course for people who are just looking to overcome a really bad breakup. People who are just really heartbroken because it's traumatic and the trauma creates attachment, which is what I mean about Mr. Lizard sending out the alarms of pain. These alarms, you know, in the context of CPTSD or PTSD are called flashbacks or emotional flashbacks. Um, but really what causes them is the pain. I didn't explain that the other day. I gave you some of the techniques that we're going to be teaching in the new course. Um, and most people are really, really happy with that. But a couple of people said, well, I'd like something a little bit more. Um, so without giving too much away, because I do want you to get the course, but I don't mind giving people stuff. It's called uh, codependency. Uh, you won't have heard of it. It's a foreign response. You wouldn't have heard of that. Um, and overgiving. You don't know anything about that. And people please syndrome. Just go and look it up. Go and look it up sometime. Um, so no, no, no. I'm, I'm quite happy to give people a little bit more on this. So one of the things that we're going to be looking at is why we um, experience subjectively the um, experience of being extremely attached to somebody and just going, oh, I just can't get over them. I, linguistics, I just cannot get over them. They're really tall. I need like a bigger trampoline <laughs> to jump over them. And then when I've leapt over them, then it's all all right. Then I feel okay again, because I, I, I leaped, I leaped it over, over them. Why does this happen? My supposition, my hypothesis, is um, massive emotional loading. So the intensity of the incident, because this is, you should stop saying relationship, um, because it, it, it comes, it's loaded linguistics, and start thinking about uh, an incident of which you were a part, where you were involved, where you had an internal locus, you were in the driving seat. You can see here, it's very loaded. Um, and then, you have this thing of, of emotional loading, which is then mapped as danger, which sets the lizard off into alarms, uh, which we could call flashbacks, or it could just be called heartache, just be called complete heartache. One of the things I started to think was, well, we need to speak the lizard's language. We need to speak whatever language um, the brain and the HPA axis is speaking so that it doesn't feel as threatened, and so we start moving forward. So when you have a massive emotional loading around something that's occurred in the past um, and that is a traumatic incident, see I'm using the language again, occurred in the past, which to the lizard means happened somewhere on the map behind that hill over there. There be dragons, there be saber-toothed tigers. It is dangerous over there. It's a, it's a software fault. It's a mapping fault. It's a brain fault. We have this massive emotional loading. So one of the things we need to do is to get over that. Well, um, I then started to ask the question, when I've experienced it and when other people have experienced it and they're talking to me, what do they frequently sort of say that they're going through? 
and there's a lot of anxiety, a lot of anxiety around the subject. And there seems to be a, um, like a, um, a sense of hopelessness around it as well. And when you start talking to them about love and future love, they don't look too happy. They don't look too enthusiastic for that. They don't seem to really want to move forward into that because there is now an association in the brain through the neural clusterfuck that we went through the other day. There is a strong association between love and pain. It's now become a painful experience. So you don't want to go back there to that place behind the hill, which is in the past, as we would say. It's in the past, in the past, on the past, behind the past, through the past. We don't want to go back there again because of this emotional loading. So what would be one solution? I'm not going to give you the whole... I'm going to give the whole uh, game away. But one of the things I think is really, really important to do to get our heads around it and to start looking at moving forward is to accept what has happened. And you go, well, I have accepted what has happened. And I would say, I don't think anybody who is cycling through the same emotions and the same thoughts again and again and again around the subject has, could really be said to have accepted what has happened. Why would we not accept it? Well, we wouldn't accept it because it's fucking painful. And the acceptance of it would be, uh, would probably require some emotional processing, which as we've discussed elsewhere, nobody really wants to do that emotional processing or grieving as it's otherwise known because it hurts. But it's actually in that acceptance. It's in the acceptance of all of it. So this is not... Um, most of my stuff is quite mainstream psychology. It's just with a different syntax and a different pace and I sugar that which is usually too dull or too painful to be bothered with. I'm, I'm, I'm fairly mainstream with what I teach people to do. This is, this, is, this is not mainstream as far as I'm aware. My hypothesis is that we struggle to move forward when we haven't accepted what has already occurred and we haven't accepted the reality what, that we're experiencing. Where there is denial, there is attachment. Where there is denial and repeated disavowal, disavowal of that which we chose, that which we did, that which we said, that which we felt, that which we thought, we're stuck in denial. It's a big river in Africa. And uh, we can't get out. So there is this concept that is used in, uh, in dial behavioral therapy um, called radical acceptance developed nearly said by Judith Herman, which would not be true, by Marsha Linehan. And uh, predominantly for people, it was designed for people who'd been diagnosed with borderline personality disorder, um, probably many of whom actually uh, were simple CPTSD sufferers, trying to find a comfortable position. I did me back this morning, you know, and holding the phone up is killing me traps. You know, it's great to be strong, right, and do loads of weights and all that, but it's a bit embarrassing when you can't hold up a pen and a fucking phone because your back's killing you. So in order to help borderlines, uh, people, sorry, people who had been diagnosed with borderline personality disorder, which whether it truly was BPD or whether it was CPTSD, both are a response to trauma. We, this is, nobody denies that. Oh, a, a few, you know, there'll be like religious freaks who'll be like, oh, it's demonic possession. Or they'll say, um, 
Uh, it's just genes that, you know, the dad had demonic DNA and then the child is Satan within his d d d d d DNA, his genes inside his denims. Satan in your denims. I've definitely got Satan in my denims. Oh, tell you what. Um, what am I on about? Oh, yeah. So because it's a response to trauma. So we know that we're dealing with, even if they're being extremely aggressive and obnoxious and painful and derailing therapeutic processes and attacking the therapist and attacking the process itself and attacking themselves all at the same time, which is the BPD sort of way of handling things. Everything, kill everything, you know, destroy everything. Um, what is missing and what helps and what... Uh, Marshall and Ahan has proven under clinical conditions time and again to, to be of assistance is radical acceptance. Radical acceptance is the total acceptance of everything that is now and everything that has happened for now. We accept all of it, but just for now. That's radical acceptance. So within this course, I come back to that concept again and again because when we're stuck, when we're hooked, I think it is because we're in denial about what actually occurred. And there are bits of the story that we can't quite process. In other fields in psychology, when they're talking about helping people to overcome PTSD, simple trauma, not complex trauma, but simple trauma, any trauma, bad exam result, um, breakup with boyfriends, uh, car accident, you know, any trauma, that the brain's internal map of reality must alter to accept the new data. And if it cannot, which trauma makes it hard to do, because we know trauma creates uh, like a, a, a cognitive stiffness, which will eventually develop into neural stiffness, which will eventually develop into a diminished neuroplasticity in the brain and a possibly even over time a shrinking of the volume of the hippocampus so you can actually get like trauma can cause um you know not it's not permanent but observable brain change it is not helpful to say brain damage as uh, there are some people out there going trauma can cause brain damage i'm like okay let's just use the proper language here it's healable all of it heals it moves it changes the brain does amazing things and it is flexible, it is plastic, it moves, it changes, it adapts. That is what learning is, that is what living is, that is what moving is, that is what thriving is, and yes, even surviving. But when we're at the end of the spectrum that is survival rather than thrival, you can't just make up words, you can't. When we're at the end of the spectrum that is more about surviving than thriving, this is very stiff and locked, and this is very much more open and fluid. So neuroplasticity, good. Brain change, good. Acceptance of reality, good. Stiffness, not good. Uh, being locked in, black and white thinking, catastrophizing, extreme denial is not good. Why do people do that? That is the brain's response to trauma. It's a kind of, think of it as like a system lockdown. Um, you know, What's happening, Scotty, the Klingons have shot the shit out of our shields, the shield levels are really low, and we haven't got that much energy there. Okay, that which energy which we have in the engine room, please put it all to the shields, Scotty. That's how Captain, that's my Captain Kirk impression. Oh, please, Scotty, please could you put all of the energy from the, from the engine room into the shields, my love? And Scotty says, of course, darling, I'm doing it now right now 
So you've got like all energy systems now on shields, please. There's no movement. So we're not, we're, not, we're not running away and there's no firing of phaser guns. We're not fighting back. We're shields up and we're still. So you've got this shock, system shock, central nervous system shock. You know, it's physical, it's hormonal. It's, uh, you know, I'm working with, uh, in the realm of trauma and using language and metaphor daily. And it's really important how we linguistically frame things. It's hugely powerful. It's magical in, in, in a certain sense, like the, the, the words we use to encompass these experiences. Yep, come in. Oh yeah, you're here to check the phones, are you? No, you're alright, I'm, I'm just on an interview. It's okay, crack on. I will be talking into the camera more. Yeah, yeah. Um, so what you actually get is a total uh, system freeze. That's trauma. It's normal for a traumatized person to freeze up. So their emotional responses become extremely diminished. They, they break down to like primary responses to the point where they're not really emotions. If all you're experiencing is I don't, well, let's say that I said there's the um, surviving or the survival and the thrivival, and we're at the end that is very, very stiff. There isn't really, you know, and I'm talking about traumatized clients that I've worked with, there really isn't uh, um, like a, a load of a palette, a palette was the word I was looking for, of different emotions. There's anxiety and depression, but they'll call it linguistically different things. They'll go, oh, sometimes... Um, I don't know, I'm obsessively thinking about my ex or sometimes I just feel like, uh, I just feel really lazy and I don't want to get out of bed. And I'm like, that's depression. And I'll say, do you think you're depressed? No, I'm not depressed. I just don't want to shower today or get out of bed or eat or do anything or talk to anybody. I'm like, it's kind of like depression. They'll go, no, no, it's not depression. <laughs> okay. So at the, at the, the, the th furthest end of the spectrum, you can end up with a total shutdown where there is no real emotional response anymore. Anxiety is not an emotion. Depression, by definition, clinical depression, is the absence of emotion. It's the flatlining of affect, A-F-F-E-C-T. So with this process, what we're looking at doing is trying to open that back up. That's why the emotional literacy exercises are so important. That's why it's so incredibly important to accept um, where the emotions are coming from and what emotions, uh, what messages the emotions are delivering. That's why that work needs to be done. That's what, you know, a, a, a more poetic language in the therapeutic context would be re-invoking the self. So the self has shrunk down in a way in response to trauma. It's frozen, it's shrunken, and it's like half visible in this metaphor. It's become a wretched and tiny thing because of the uh, overwhelming stimulus and the amount of pain that it's received, it's its survival response to that. So pulling that back the other way is difficult. So imagine this, imagine that what's actually happening here is not what you're telling yourself is happening. This is not an excess of attachment. So this would be um, where your, your brain can adopt different metaphors and some metaphors are useful. So we have like Buddhist therapy. So a Buddhist therapist, a Buddhist psychotherapeutic therapist would say, this is an excess of attachment, which is true in some sense, but it doesn't really help to define the mechanics of that attachment. I would say this, imagine you can look through different pairs of glasses. 
One pair of glasses is broken and faded and it doesn't fit your face very well. And it's, it's the, the lenses are broken, faded and dirty. And so you're looking at the world through a certain lens that is not very helpful and the other pair of glasses are clean and they're prescription glasses and they're the right ones for you and they help you to see things more clearly. The one end of the spectrum, which is the survival response, they're the dirty broken glasses. At the other end, that's the survival response. These are the clean appropriate glasses. When you're looking through the dirty lenses of the traumatized response, the neuroplasticity, the neuroplasticity diminished response, the neurologically stiff response, where we break down to black and white thinking because we've gone into full survival mode, everything is going to be distorted. Your emotions will be distorted. Your cognition around your emotions will be distorted. Your whole, the way you tell yourself what you've experienced is gonna experience a massive amount of distortion. I think that the problem that we face, therefore, is the perceptual, the perceptual position that's been adopted is faulty. That's what needs to be fixed. If you wanna overcome the so-called attachment. If you want to overcome the so-called trauma bond, you've actually got to adopt a new perceptual position. And then the work, like if, if we accept, like there's like seven different assumptions and presuppositions that I've just loaded in there. But if they are correct, and everything I've done so far indicates to me that it's likely that that is true, the, then we can just get to work. We do, then we go, okay, the only thing I need to be focusing on is moving my perceptual position from one of a traumatized person to one of somebody who's, uh, you know, in the uh, survival phase. Um, and that is not easy to do if you are actually genuinely traumatized. So this is where neuro-linguistic neuro programming comes in. Let's not get into a debate about how scientifically valid it is or whatever else. Some of the, the framing and the, uh, the, the programs and the strategies of neuro-linguistic programming work very, very well. And they have a good thing called modeling. And they particularly like to model internal representations. So if I can encourage you, stick with me. I know this is a little bit more complicated than one we did yesterday. The lesson, the lesson yesterday was like, uh, was like a quick and easy uh, introduction to a big subject. This one's, the, this one's the context, this is the backup to that, and it's a little bit harder to grasp, but it's gonna give you more of a foundation. So if, you're, if the problem is that your perceptual position is stiff and rooted in trauma, and I need to shift your perceptual position to one that is, is neuroplastic and that is rooted in uh, thriving, but you're not naturally there yet, the only thing I can help you to do is to artificially model the thought and feeling and cognition modalities of a person who is healed. You still with me? <laughs> I hope so. So you've gone, you've gone, oh, I can't get out. I'm stuck on that chair then. That chair had hold of me. I tell you what, didn't want to let me go. Um, so you, you, then, you then have to say, okay, I'm... Um, I'm in, uh, do you remember in Lord of the Rings, wherever he put the ring on, he went into this other realm, or in uh, Stranger Things, and there was like this, what was it, it was called, the Upside Down, was it? Or, or the Gloom, or this, the Gloom was in the Russian uh, vampire films, did you ever see that? It's pretty cool, the Russian vampire movies. Um, 
It was called The Gloom. So there was like this, there's a running theme in different films, particularly in the, the horror sci-fi genre of another realm. It's this world, but it's, a di- it's, it's this world from a different perceptual position. And it might be darker, it might be weirder, but it might give you like psychic advantages or supernatural powers or allow you to access other beings or something like that. So what we're trying to do is we're going, we're in the gloom, <laughs> we're in the upside down if we're traumatized. And that makes us stuck. It also makes us clingy. And I mean, we are, imagine somebody who's drowning and the mindset of somebody who is drowning. They're grasping and clawing to not die. That's not a good moment for them to learn some new fancy branch of, of philosophy, is it? It's not a good moment to introduce them to some new genre of music. Be like, have you heard the latest electro swing track? Oh, it's very funky. I think you'd like, that's not a good fucking time, man. They're busy right now. They're busy trying not to suck down salt water into their lungs. But if you are calm and you're aboard the ship and you're warm and it's a pleasant day, and you're on the deck and you're gazing out to the horizon and it's a clear day and the horizon is still and you're barely rocking and you're moving forward, that's a good time to start thinking about that which you're attached to and that which maybe it's time to let go of. At that point, we can start going, okay, I have choices. You don't really have choices when you're traumatized. I think this is why CBT... um, Traditionally, because I've been a, a CBT, I wasn't a therapist, but I, I was a, uh, I gave talks for the probation service using CBT. And many people mock CBT because it doesn't work very well. And it's quite a blunt instrument, but it does work for some people. And I think the difference is trauma. If you're heavily traumatized, you can't talk about your options because there's no options there. The brain is just going, no, fuck off. Uh, it's some, for some people, they're too traumatized even for, even for therapy, like to, to, to sit down in a room with another adult and look at another uh, adult human being who's a stranger and have some weird, awkward conversation about your feelings is the, the brain's response to that is fuck off. And well, that makes sense because that person is drowning. It's very important like that you have like um, as a coach, as a therapist, as a counselor, that sense of where the person is up to and to meet them where they are as an ally, which is why sometimes I'll just start talking to people about their favorite holiday destination or what their favorite flavor ice cream is because they're not, they're just gonna reject me if I just storm in there and go, let's talk about your feelings. You know, you've gotta like, you gotta warm up a little bit and not be, you kind of need to get next to them. Like I need to be stood next to you. So look, I'm looking at this board. I want you to look at the board as well. I don't want you in front of me. I want your perceptual position to be here. So we're shifting the perceptual position to here. So right now you're looking at me. Imagine, imagine in this scenario that you're focused on your ex and there's a, there's a, there's a, definite, there's a relationship, there's a person, there's a name, there's a bank account number, there's socks. Socks. And I go, no. <laughs> You think your brain is telling you it's that dude, it's that girl, it's that individual, but it's not. It's actually this. That's a perceptual shift. That this is where all the options are. This is where all the understanding is. This is where the um, the locus of control becomes internalized again through the perceptual shift. 
So what I'm encouraging people to do, and you know, I want to give you guys as much as I, as, as I can for for free, um, but there needs to be an amount that I hold back because I do want you to get the course. Is to model the thoughts of a person who is healed in order to deal with the trauma of not being healed. When it comes to, and love is a really good example for this, like the trauma of love, like once we've done this course and we've cracked this course, which we haven't yet, which is why on Thursday I'm doing the mini seminar and the feedback session. And, you know, we've got other uh, bits and pieces of research that we're going to do with, with uh, pre-existing clients. Um, we're actually looking at the roots of trauma and how to change trauma and how to heal trauma it, itself. So we would be saying, we'll use the example that we're dealing with for this course, breaking the trauma bond is, is predominantly around either a parent or a romantic partner. And we go, okay, so you uh, are living a story inside your head, inside the head, that you're in pain because you're not with the person that you love and the relationship ended. And that's the story. And it plays over and over again in the head. And I'm saying, well, okay, but it's playing over and over again in the head because of denial, because we're not fully accepting what has happened. And one of the reasons why we can't fully accept that which has happened is because it's very, very painful to move forward bravely. And that actually what it is is that we're frightened. We're scared because we don't know what's next. And in some weird way, in the brain's traumatic clinging way, it's, it's almost easier to hold on to the wreckage of the Titanic and just freeze to death in the water than it is to swim forward and go and find another ship. Because who knows where that ship could be? I mean, at least I have this door here to lie on that two people could lie on, but that rich bitch let the, you know, the working class guy just drown because she was like, you couldn't possibly. Sorry, Jack. I mean, I love you and everything, but you are poor, so. Bye-bye. Um, it still pisses me off. That's why I fucking hate that film. I was, I was with the whole film up until that point. I'm like, get on the door. Get on the door. You can fit. Ridiculous. Class war. So we then have to start dealing with the fear and the lack of acceptance. Radical acceptance is a good way of doing that. To fully accept everything that has happened but also to model what a healed person would do. So without giving too much away, what a healed person would do is they would look to the future and they would fantasize about what a good relationship would look like as something they do want. So a little bit of neuro-linguistic programming exercise. And I want to give you the essence of this. So you never need to buy the course. If you have an imagination, you can make this up because I'll give you the principles. It's the same as a martial art. If I teach you the principles, you just make the techniques up. Think of something that you know that you do want. That when you think about it, you're excited. You, you're like, I definitely, definitely want that. It is a weird thing to do that we wouldn't normally do. It's, it's normal for people who are, who are brainwashed into NLP to do it, but it's not normal for most people to do. So if you've got something that you know that you want, think about the way that you want. I sound like Slavoj Žižek. It is not that ideology just teaches us what to want. The problem is that ideology teaches us how to want. You know, it, model, it molds what we should desire but the true perversion, says Slavoj Žižek, is it molds how we desire. 
Let's think about how we desire. When you think about something that you truly want, what do you see? When you're inside your mind's eye, where do you picture it? Like far away, is it distant? Is it, up in the, is it up in the air? Is it right here? Are you in the picture living it? Do you feel something? Do you hear something? Is it a video? Is it in color? Is it black and white? Is it a picture? If it's a picture, if it's a picture, is it a huge picture or is it a little picture? What are you hearing? Are you saying something to yourself? Are you saying, God, I really want this. Oh my God, that would be so cool if I did that. Cause I don't know where it is. It could be like a place you want to go to. It might be a material thing like a car. It might be an experience. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what the content is. The only thing that matters is how you want. When you want something and you're really excited for it and you really want it, how do you feel? Where do you feel it in your body? Where does excitement begin? Is it in your chest? Is it a buzzing feeling, an electric feeling? Does it crackle? Is it in your bones? Is it where, where is it? It's different for everybody, slightly different, but usually plays out in similar ways. Now think about that. And what you're gonna do is you're gonna take that, that's called, that would be called, uh, in NLP, it would be a, a strategy of your internal representations for wantingness. And imagine those feelings and thinking about getting into a new relationship in that same modality. So if you saw the thing that you wanted close and you were in the picture, you imagine a new relationship as though you were in the picture. You hear what you would hear, you feel what you would feel when you really want something. If yours was a movie or like a, a three second video clip that was playing and it was in color, you do that. That's what you do now. If there was something you were saying to yourself like, oh my God, this would be so cool if I could do this. That's what you say to yourself about the new relationship, whatever it is. To get you into the mindset of a healed person who could want it. Because then the brain goes, it, it, it's, it's, it's kind of like a catch-22. Because if you're stuck in thinking about it in a certain way, the brain is gonna repeat and repeat and repeat. So that's what we do. We do this really, really well. It's a very, very human thing to just keep repeating and keep repeating, keep repeating. So repetition is the thing that you will do mostly. So is your repetition focused on where everything went wrong? Well, <laughs> if you're even considering the course, the likely answer is yes. What you're not repeating or as I've said here, there's a specific technique in the course for calibration for hope, but what you're not repeating is hopefulness. So the idea then of um, daydreaming or focusing on futurescaping, something that could happen that is good, that feels good, that is something that you want, at first is gonna feel really, really weird and really, really distant and really, really unlikely. So it needs to be entrained. It needs to be entrained into the system. That can take time. The time it would take, I would think, whoops, let me fell over. The time it would take, I would think, you'd be looking at a couple of weeks and it would need to be done with dedication and it would need to be, you'd need to be spending upwards of an hour on it a day. But inside of a couple of weeks of entraining that, you should be finding that your brain catches up. So what the point I was gonna make about repetition is uh, the catch 22 you're in is whatever you're doing today, you're gonna to keep doing, but you wanna do something different. But the brain, you can't just say, this is what I want you to do. You can't just with content, because that would be context-focused language, which the brain typically doesn't respond amazingly well to. You have to show the brain how to do it. 
I'm hoping that makes sense here. I hope that doesn't like a load, a load of psychedelic gobbledygook. So you can't just say, well, you, you, you would have, let's say it like this. You would have a certain amount of success if all you said, let's say the subject that we're dealing with is uh, um, depression and feelings of hopelessness versus optimism and feelings of cheerfulness. So if you just said to you, if you were just gave yourself the post-hypnotic suggestion, like in an affirmation basis, um, I'm going to feel really good today. I'm going to feel really good today. I'm going to feel really good today. And you repeated that like seven times a day. You'd get a result. You would get some kind of a result from that for sure. Because, you know, that's just how suggestion works. It works every time for everybody, always to an extent. For some people, it would work really well. For some people, it would work a little bit less. But compared to the modeling that I showed you before, the modeling, which would be, how is it when you are feeling good, how do you feel good? And actually going through that whole process of like, what do you see? What do you feel? What do you uh, see? Uh, uh, what do you hear? What do you say to yourself? And actually ramping yourself up into that state. So you remember I said to you about the lizard, the lizard controlling the emotional flashbacks, the lizard controlling the visual and auditory flashbacks. That's the part of the brain that we're trying to convince here, but it's dumb as a rock. It's really thick. So to the human brain, we can say, feel good today, feel cheerful today. This, this works, we know, like that, that's not uh, NLP fringe stuff, that's mainstream psychology. If I walk into a room and I lecture you for half an hour and I pepper my lecture with uh, uh, feeling good, uh, healing, moving fast, feeling uh, uh, cheerful, uh, sunny, happy, Wow, it's all good. We're out there. We're doing it. Success, assertiveness. You just like you. You eventually the brain goes. Yes, the things he said. I do it. It's non-conscious. I won't bore you with the research details, but like this has been proven beyond a shadow of a doubt. Whereas if I come into a lecture and I'm going slow, depressed, shuffling, broken, then you'll feel a different way. That's the human brain though, which is responding and interpreting that for the lizard brain, which is dumb as a rock. So we're going through an interpretive procedure. What I'm suggesting is hijacking the interpretive procedure. We're talking about unconscious um, conditioning where you show, don't tell. Show the lizard brain, don't tell it, show it. So you just go, this is what I, and it, it, you do it through uh, vividly imagining through the senses. This is what I see when I feel good. This is what I hear when I feel good. This is what I feel when I hear good. This is what I internally say in my dialogue. This is what I say to myself when I feel good. And then you actually ramp up your state consciously to the point where you do feel good. The lizard brain goes, oh, feel good. Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay. And then it just starts repeating that. If you did it, like in my uh, um, imprisonment brainwashing camps that I run where people sign waivers where their human rights will, will be ignored. Um, after seven days of that, you wouldn't be able to help yourself but feel good because at some level, the uh, unpleasant but you know useful truth is we are kind of dumb meat machines. We're kind of like these uh, animal robots. And if we're practicing feeling good every day, the more, you, the, the more often you practice feeling good, then the more often you'll feel good. And if you feel good more than, you'll feel, than you feel bad, then you'll feel good more than you feel bad. That's the catch-22.
Like if you're always feeling bad, you're always feeling bad, always feeling bad, always feeling bad. If you're always feeling good, you're always feeling good, always feeling good, always feeling good. So it's, it's that push into a new direction. It's that perceptual shift. Once you've gone into the new perceptual position, from there, it becomes possible to future cast what a, a good relationship would look like compared to a sandwich. What's that about? Um, and to get a state of hopefulness. Once you future casted forward into that and you're fully associated, meaning you're in the moment experiencing it as though it were happening now again and again and again and again and again, you're greasing the groove which is a term from strength training, for those of you who are familiar with the, uh, the Russian strength training methods uh, touted by fine gentlemen like Pavel, um, it's neurology-based, and we, all of this, research-based, works. Grease the groove. You just do it over and over and over and over and over and over again until the brain goes, well, this is easy, because it all becomes a skill, which is a good perceptual reframing from NLP. All of this is a skill. All of this is a strategy. Nothing is broken. So if you imagine depression as a kind of a strategy or something that you do, it re-internalizes it re re the locus of control. Feeling good is a skill. Feeling good is something that you, uh, a strength that you can build over time that makes you feel better. And you can bring hope back in to the internal space, to the emotional space, to the somatic space, and you can start looking to a future and actually really working towards making that a reality. But it ha you have to go first. I can't do it for you. Nobody can do it for you. You must go first. You must go, okay, now I'm going to vividly imagine this as though it were happening now, because this is the only way it will be happening ever. If I vividly imagine it now, it will become real. It has the chance of becoming reality ever. It's, it's almost, it's a psychological point. It's purely research-based psychological point, but it's on the verge of sounding a bit mystical. But this is what the um, first, this is the first chapter of the new course is all going to be about. So I wanted to give you guys some context and I wanted to give you some more um, value and to help you understand some of the principles um, when it comes, when they're actually out, which will be soon, once we've got everything in place and we're all happy with it. Um, the techniques that are in there, the guidance that is in there is really just to back all that up. It's really just to take you by the hand and go step by step, okay, this is exactly how I want you to do it. But what I just showed you there, that's it in principle. There isn't, there isn't in terms of breaking a trauma bond, when it comes to uh, romance, when it comes to having been in a bad relationship, the breaking of the trauma bond, you know it's broken when you are feeling good about moving forward. When you're feeling good about moving forward, what's the trauma bond? Like, it's not going to be, there won't be, your onboard computer won't have the uh, space and the, the random access memory left because you'll be walking around, you'll be, you'll be happy moving forward, and then you go, oh, I'm supposed to feel bad today. I'm like, fuck, how many minutes am I supposed to feel bad for? Well, on a normal day, we were feeling bad for like six hours, and you'd be like, dude, I'm not, I haven't got time to fucking feel bad for six hours. Do you wanna do it? I'll give you six minutes. We do it like high intensity interval of six minutes of feeling bad, and you go, okay, we'll, feel, we'll, we'll try and feel bad for six minutes, and then you just go back to feeling good again. There is only so much time and so much conscious awareness we have. It's just a question of tricking Mr. Lizard. It's a question of getting it through to that part of the brain. We don't need to do this. This isn't making us safer. 
being depressed, being anxious, staying at home and self-isolating doesn't make us safer. What makes us safer is to heal and move forward and to go and get on with our lives. Okay, so that gave you context and a little bit more help. I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you for your time and your attention. And I look forward to speaking to you all soon.